Hi-ho, this is Jordan, and this is Year 2006, the retrospective podcast analyzing pop culture news and trends of the 21st century. I'm very excited to use this episode to examine the 2003 California gubernatorial recall, specifically the circumstances that led up to it. As California's Secretary of State, it is my duty today to certify the first recall election of a governor in California history. One Texas company decided to destroy the career of California's incumbent governor and replace him with an action movie star in the year 2003, possibly with the help of the federal government. That's kind of it. In order to understand how that is even possible, I need to spend our time in part one giving you the backstory of this Texas company because this wasn't an ordinary company. The company's fame slogan was, Ask Why. It took 16 years to build and less than a month to flat-out collapse. Business analysts across the nation agree that this company's wrongdoing is a textbook example of corporate greed. It's surely all anyone thinks about when they hear the name of this no longer existent Texas oil, gas, and commodities company, Enron. The names of Enron's late chairman and CEO, Ken Lay, and CEO and COO, Jeffrey Skilling, might ring a bell. Terms also commonly associated with Enron are mark-to-market accounting and Arthur Anderson, as well as the usual corporate scandal terms of made-up numbers that cost the company's stock to soar and rich guys evading real justice once they got caught. I mean, for God's sake, if you saw Alex Gibney's documentary, Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, in 2005 and learned how Ken Lay made hundreds of fraudulent millions, it must have been a real slap in the face to see him conveniently die one year later before he served an actual prison sentence. In attendance at Ken Lay's funeral was a good friend of his, former U.S. President George H.W. Bush. Oh yeah, I should probably mention, Enron was once a powerful Texas company that was also connected to one of the most powerful families in Texas, them Bushes. Why do I mention Texas so much in a podcast purportedly about California and the elections of their governors? Well, that's because if it weren't for Enron, Arnold Schwarzenegger may have never ruled California for the bulk of the 2000s. Faster than you can say, rolling blackout, Enron led the effort to get California's then-Governor Gray Davis sacked while simultaneously funding the 2000 campaign of Bush Jr. We'll explore Enron's role in California and the results of the 2003 gubernatorial recall in parts 2 and 3. For part 1, we're going to focus more on Enron's national influence, and if you know nothing about Enron at all, I got you covered. I will not even try to answer the question, why now? But get ready, because I'm going to attempt to answer, was Enron's scandal a political one or strictly a business one? And is Enron's failure proof the system works, or was there always a bigger scandal the federal government deliberately ignored? All this and more, as I give you your year 2000 fix. Growing up, I was always so curious about Enron, but I never could fully understand what happened, no matter how many times my business genius of a father tried to explain it to me. After reading a few articles and re-watching the aforementioned doc, Enron the Smartest Guys in the Room, I think I finally get it. I really need to disclose that I am not, and don't think I ever will be, a financial expert. If I have to issue any corrections, message me on my anchor profile, or just text me because you probably already know me if you're listening to this. But I promise, I'm working hard here to explain the Enron scandal for dummies. I am one of these dummies, so I hope I'm not insulting my own listeners. Anyhow, Enron, 
The Houston, Texas-based energy and commodities company was once worth over $100 billion. If you invested in Enron stock in the mid-90s, or even as late as spring of 2001, you'd be floored by the earnings reports and how much returns the company generated. That is, after you spent a near $100 for a single share. Enron schemes were made possible in part by Texas's decision in the 1990s to deregulate their energy markets. The Texas energy markets are still very much deregulated. We know that. But long before Texans were hit by five-figure energy bills during a winter storm, and long before Senator Ted Cruz blamed his own kids for his attempted escape to Cancun, analysts gave a strong buy to an energy company who wouldn't share their off-balance sheet partnerships and whose CFO wouldn't even show up to their own conferences. By the year 2000, Enron had sold off its iron and steel assets and appeared to profit off, quote, buying and selling gas and electricity. That's what the high stock price reflected. Enron even had plans to expand into broadband and join the online world. This is the part of the Enron story where my dad would lose me. What does selling gas and electricity actually mean? Put simply, what does Enron really do? Turns out, investors couldn't succinctly answer that either. As one of the sole critics of Enron noted pre-scandal, quote, Describing what Enron does isn't easy because what it does is mind-numbingly complex. CEO Jeff Skilling calls Enron a logistics company, and that ties together supply and demand for a given commodity and figures out the most cost-effective way to transport that commodity to its destination. Enron also uses derivatives like swaps, options, and forwards to create contracts for third parties and to hedge its exposure to credit risks and other variables. If you thought Enron was just an energy company, have a look at its SEC filings, end quote. This critic, Bethany McLean, then of Fortune magazine, said there was a, quote, absence of crucial information in the company's financial reports, end quote. In other words, the other big question no one could really answer was, how does Enron make money? Why do Enron's scarce financial statements report low amounts of cash and high amounts of debt? Why did Enron take on so much debt at such a, quote, rapid rate if they were known to be so profitable? Here's what was really going on. Jeffrey Skilling became CEO around the time of Texas's energy deregulation and decided that the hip new way to deliver energy was to sell energy like stocks rather than do so through pipelines. Skilling was described as a, quote, visionary. And imagine Peter Coyote's voice narrating the Enron doc when he says, When Jeff Skilling's applied to Harvard Business School and the professor asked him if he was smart, he replied, I'm fucking smart. Enron's high stock prices were attributed to their, quote, mark-to-market business model. This meant they were valued at their market price at a given moment in time. In other words, Enron continually reported future profits they were sure to earn in spite of how much money was actually coming in. This way they could value their assets much higher than they really were. Enron may have lost billions investing in an Indian power plant, but they could still give their own execs bonuses based on imaginary profits that never arrived. Business and legal advisory company Anderson Advisors has a nice example to explain Enron's accounting practices. Their quote, As far as mark-to-market accounting went, Enron would engage in the building of assets, say, for instance, a power plant, and log its projected revenue on the books, even if it had yet to produce a dime of income or cash flow. 
Enron would transfer the asset to a subsidiary that wasn't on their accounting record, essentially making it disappear. Wow. Bethany McLean unknowingly hit the problem on the head when she said that the mark-to-market earnings aren't necessarily cash at the instant they are recorded. You're damn right they're not. And we'll come back to McLean's findings in just a bit. Enron never stopped being shady until they legally had to. The young accountants of Enron were likened to a clique that's so cool that even the principal won't touch them. By around 2000, Enron actually planned on teaming up with Blockbuster for video-on-demand entertainment. Yeah, that Blockbuster. Enron wouldn't make a single cent on this deal. Blockbuster soon backed out. But because they reported $53 million in future earnings, Enron execs made millions selling their inflated stock, valued at the time at $71 a share. With so much prowess, Jeffrey Skilling and Enron chairman Ken Lay knew how to intimidate those who questioned Enron's practices. When financial analyst John Olson publicly criticized Enron, Ken Lay reported Olson to his boss, saying Olson had been wrong about Enron for 10 years. And in his note, Lay wrote that the only thing, quote, consistent about Olson was how wrong he was. Olson disagreed and said that unlike Ken Lay, he could actually spell the word consistent correctly. Lay thought that word ended with an A-N-T. I find it even more egregious that Enron encouraged their own employees to invest their 401k into Enron stock. Employees were not allowed to sell these shares, so when the company folded, there went their savings. Top Brass took millions of dollars in funds for personal accounts. Other millions ended up in offshore accounts with odd names. One of them belonged to a fictional speculator, Mr. M. Yass. My ass, get it? The My Ass account was part of many schemes concocted by Enron CFO Andy Fastow. Fastow was called the Sorcerer's Apprentice because he placed $30 billion in debt in made-up companies called Jedi, Chewcock, Raptors, LJM, among others, and made it look as though cash was coming out the door. Fastow's greatest trick was convincing Merrill Lynch, Chase, Citibank, Deutsche Bank, and many other big-name investors into buying Enron's assets. Buying assets really meant they were loaning Enron money. Those book-cooking investors really earned their title of useful idiots because they didn't question anything the whole time they invested. Maybe they knew, but that's still just as bad. Then you get accountants at Arthur Anderson vouching for Enron because Enron paid them a million dollars a week. But then the big old whistleblower brought them down, right? That's why there's no more Enron? An insider with a change of heart busted them with a real case of stick it to the mon neosis? It's a rare blood disease. Uh, not really. At least not if I'm understanding things correctly. Enron declared bankruptcy by December of 2001. The thing that brought Enron down in the months preceding their collapse appears to be people just using common sense. Here's a nice summary, again from Anderson Advisors. Quote, The death blow that accelerated Enron's demise was when electric company Dinergy backed out of a deal at the same time the SEC was opening investigations into Enron's mysterious actions around closing subsidiaries and changing executives. Criminal investigations ensued when it was discovered that accounting firms were literally shredding financial statements to conceal them from the SEC. The end effect of the Enron scandal was to bring into question the accounting practices of many financial institutions. See, there's an obvious drawback to mark-to-market accounting. If the economy goes down, so does the reported value of the assets. 
Enron's reported imaginary profits needed to be higher and higher each year, and that wasn't going to work if the economy lowered the value of their assets. Put another way, Enron stock kept dropping because they weren't actually making money, and investors finally started to realize that Enron's projected gains were really losses. Enron was forced to admit that, whoops, they overstated profits in the reports by way of $400 million, and then we'd eventually learn that $600 million worth of debt was hidden in their made-up companies. The changing executives line from the quote I read a moment ago refers to the fact that many execs were cashing out before things turned for the worse, and that Jeffrey Skilling abruptly resigned as Enron's CEO in the summer of 2001, which only attracted more press attention to the company. Following this, the Wall Street Journal questioned the financial actions of CFO Andy Fastow, whom Ken Lay and Jeffrey Skilling would later blame for everything once they were caught. Class acts those guys are. Ken Lay pompously claimed he couldn't be held responsible for Fastow's misdoings, which included siphoning $45 million from one of his made-up companies. Enron declared bankruptcy by December of 2001, but let's take a step back two months prior. By October of 2001, as Enron's stock fell to $19 a share, and Arthur Anderson accountants actually started shredding paper, Ken Lay assured his employees nothing was wrong despite one employee anonymously asking Lay in a note if he was on crack. I don't have an answer to that question, but I do know that Ken Lay, along with Jeffrey Skilling and the rest, are responsible for over 20,000 jobs lost and billions in retirement money disappearing. Meanwhile, many of Enron's execs walked away with millions in bonuses. To reiterate, there was no deep throat here leaking corporate info to the press and risking their life to fight for the truth and see to it that the greedy actors of Enron were brought down. My favorite podcast right now, You're Wrong About, discusses the unheard angles and misconceptions we have surrounding famous people and events. The hosts point out in their Enron episode that the person who most resembles a quote whistleblower in this story was Enron's former VP, Sharon Watkins. In fact, She's made a good speaking career as the Enron whistleblower, but much like the You're Wrong About hosts, I'm not so convinced Watkins is the whistleblower upon learning the true extent of her actions. In August of 2001, Watkins, who worked for CFO Andy Fastow, didn't understand how Arthur Anderson signed off on Enron's strange-looking accounting spreadsheets. As Watkins suspected the numbers were a result of wrongdoing, she wrote a letter to Kenley, noting that the company's suspicious actions could even lead to their doom. She advised Enron to come clean about what was really going on, but then she basically took Kenley's word for it when he told her there was nothing to worry about. That really isn't much of an exaggeration. When Watkins brought her concerns to Kenley, Enron was facing massive losses, slash shareholder equity by half a billion dollars, and intense pressure from investors. Watkins did say to Lay in a memo, I wish we would get caught, but she pretty much moved on once Lay replied that he'd, quote, look into these structures. What Lay really meant was he was going to get some help burying the bodies. Also, Watkins admitted she sold $50,000 worth of stock prior to Enron's downfall based off insider info. Even though Congress used Watkins as the, quote, whistleblower to bust Lay, Skilling, and the rest, NBC News reported that Watkins never voiced her concerns about Enron outside the company. The only other person who came close to unearthing the Enron scandal was Fortune magazine writer Bethany McLean, whom we mentioned earlier. Her March 2001 article on Enron's stock value was in fact titled, Is Enron Overpriced? Not much else happened here either. 
Upon the article's publication, Jeffrey Skilling said McLean was, quote, unethical for failing to do more research and flew three Enron execs to her office in New York to basically mansplain to her why she was wrong. Ken Lay also gaslit, no pun intended, Fortune's managing editor by implying McLean was a bad employee. Prior to publication, Andy Fastow reportedly said to McLean and her editor, that they could actually write whatever they wanted about the company, but said, quote, Don't make me look bad. To that I say, who does Fast Out think he is? Russell Hammond from Almost Famous? McLean, unsurprisingly, did not invest in Enron, but the general stock investing public seemed unfazed anyhow. Maybe that's because, despite calling out Enron before the disaster, McLean's actual article left out vital information that in hindsight would have been more crushing to Enron and their enablers. For example, McLean left out the suspicious role Andy Fastow and accounting firm Arthur Anderson played in the company's financial statements, even though she could have. McLean even admitted in 2002 that this omission was naive of her. Her feeling at the time was if Enron's accountants and Andy Fastow's partners said nothing was wrong, nothing was wrong. Worth noting, two years after she wrote her Fortune article, McLean would co-author Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room, and both she and Sharon Watkins appear in the ensuing documentary I got a lot of my information from. When put on trial, Ken Lay and Jeffrey Skilling claimed they knew nothing Sure, and the Reagan administration knew nothing of Iran-Contra, and Chris Christie was never involved in Bridgegate. Ken Lay died of a heart attack in 2006 before a final verdict was reached on him. Skilling began serving his 24-year prison sentence the same year, but was released to a halfway house in 2018. I do know that uh, uh, Mr. Lay came to the White House in, early in my administration along with, uh, I think, 20 other business leaders to discuss the state of the economy. It was just kind of a general discussion. I have not met with him personally. I think I've said everything you'll need to know about the Enron corporate scandal. I left out plenty, so if you're eager to learn more about Enron the business, I'll link to my sources in the show notes, including the You're Wrong About episode, but I highly recommend you watch the Enron Smartest Guys in the Room documentary. Also, we'll revisit Enron in part two to explain one of the worst things they did, second to defrauding investors and stealing all their workers' retirement funds. Now that we're all on the same playing field about Enron, let's see if we can answer the questions I posed going into this. Here's the first one. Was Enron scandal a political one or strictly a business one? Short answer, both. The Enron story, as I told it, sounded like a standard white-collar crime tale. Maybe even a preview of what we would suffer in 2008. Rich finance people swindle us and get away with it all. What a concept. That's definitely what the guys from the White House wanted you to think. Except with Enron, there was something more going on, and probably intentionally left unexplored. In answering whether or not Enron's actions constituted a political scandal, we first have to examine Enron's link to the administration of George W. Bush. Enron and Ken Lay were among the largest contributors to Bush's 2000 presidential campaign. Think nearly a million dollars, maybe as much as two million, going into W, depending on who you read. That alone should raise some red flags. In 2002, President George W. Bush's attitude towards the Enron scandal and his Department of Justice investigating it could be summed up with, didn't know about it, found out the same way you did, and boy, we won't let that ever happen again. Right, so Bush and his administration knew nothing of Enron and Ken Lay's actions. This in spite of the fact that Ken Lay was friends with Bush's father, and W. Bush was so close to Ken Lay that he called Lay Kenny Boy. Side note. Bush would try to walk this back in 2002, 
and claimed that Ken Lay actually supported his opponent during his 1994 gubernatorial run. That is actually true, but Bush still received a much higher contribution from Lay, and then there's all that money that went into his presidential campaign. South Carolina Senator Fritz Hollings said best, Bush may as well have said, I did not have political relations with that man, Mr. Lay. Also, Vice President Dick Cheney met with Ken Lay six times before Enron's collapse, and at one time considered Lay for a Secretary of Energy position. Lay was so chummy with Dick Cheney that instead of addressing him as Mr. Vice President, as all the other energy execs had, Lay called him Dick. I mean, geez, Bush couldn't even try to sound convincing as he publicly stated he was, quote, outraged towards Enron's criminal actions. I just imagine Bush waving his, quote, outraged fist in the same pathetic fashion an old man does as he tells those damn kids to get off his lawn. In true Bush fashion, he claimed that when Enron came to his administration in the hopes of being saved from their financial woes, his cabinet said, no help here. The CEO's signature should also be his personal certification, vouching for the veracity and fairness of the financial disclosures. When he signs a statement, he's giving his word and should stand behind it. Look, maybe they really didn't know about the crooked finances ahead of time. But Enron sure knew a lot of the Bush administration's cronies. Bush's chief economic advisor, Lawrence Lindsay, served on Enron's advisory board, and U.S. Trade Representative Robert Zolek worked for one of Enron's biggest creditors. Bush's Attorney General John Ashcraft had to recuse himself from the DOJ investigation because Enron gave him over $60,000 for his failed 2000 Senate run. If you've seen Fahrenheit 9-11, you remember Ashcraft lost to a dead guy. Enron also had ties to then-Secretary of Homeland Security Tom Ridge, because when Ridge was Pennsylvania's governor, Lay coaxed Bush into helping Enron break into Pennsylvania's energy market. Bush strategist Carl Rove was a big Enron stockholder. Then-Secretary of Army Thomas White Jr. was once an Enron exec. Bush appointed SEC Chairman Harvey Pitt once he took office. Pitt previously worked for Arthur Anderson, you know, the document-shredding accounting company that folded with Enron. But wait, I'm not done. While Ken Lay had personal ties to the Bushes, Enron, the company, is what the Wall Street Journal described as a, quote, nonpartisan briber. That's because Enron even had ties to the Clinton administration. While serving for Clinton, Robert Rubin helped oversee legislation that was favorable to Enron. John Holdren was appointed by Clinton to oversee the Council of Advisors of Science and Technology, and in June of 2001, when Bush was president, the council called for more energy deregulation. I really don't want to get into conspiracies, but is it not odd that all these people had ties to Enron and didn't do much to crack down on the company's fishy practices? Is it not fishy that these people worked in specific fields like the SEC or the Treasury that are supposed to protect us from greedy companies like Enron? The message that the Bush White House wanted in our heads was, the system works. Enron did something wrong, they got caught, and although Bush's Treasury Secretary, Paul O'Neill, could have acted sooner, he eventually agreed not to bail out the bankrupt Enron. I picture Bush and company dusting their hands as they assure us that there wasn't anything else to worry about. As Dick Cheney's aide, Mary Madeline, put it, all this worrying was the fault of the Democratic media, who wanted to act like Enron was, quote, some billing record or some cattle scam or some fire travel aids or some blue dress. Boy, Clinton's misdoings must have really had an effect on the American public if a line like that worked. 
Except no, sorry, this is more, pun intended this time, gaslighting. The White House refused to detail the nature of their meetings with Ken Lay and other energy execs prior to Enron's bankruptcy. In fact, they didn't even want to admit that Ken Lay and Enron had met with the vice president as frequently as they had. That means we don't know for certain what kind of favors were being handed out to the energy companies that were in cahoots with the vice president. Were there more Enrons that didn't get caught? The Bush administration wouldn't tell you. House Democrat Henry Waxman, who led the investigation into Enron, believed Cheney discussed an energy package that contained, quote, 17 proposals favoring Enron. As Waxman put it, quote, there is a very intimate connection between Enron and the Bush administration. How could they not have known what was happening? I think we need to find out what people in the administration knew, many of them who used to work for Enron. We ought to find out whether they ignored warning signs. We never conclusively found out what the Bush administration did or didn't ignore, but we can actually hazard a guess as to what went on during those meetings. According to the documentary, Bush Family Fortunes, Bush put the very people who funded him in the room to devise a clean air policy. They wrote the policy. He enacted the policy, and the policy was strictly voluntary, did nothing to clean up the air, yet he touted it as a major accomplishment. See. Bush and Cheney knew that the major gas companies, Enron included, hated those pesky environmental rules and regulations. Caps on utility prices had to go too. The Bush administration evidently was willing to compromise with the energy and gas companies by giving them everything they wanted. Bush clearly has some nerve for publicly claiming that no favors were ever made to Enron when you find out this. Here's another favor cut to Ken Lay, allowing him to choose who policed energy markets. Not that there was much policing to begin with. Bush Family Fortunes likens Ken Lay advising Cheney on who should be on the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to Al Capone buying off the cops. Bush appointed all three people Ken Lay named. Unsurprisingly, by investing so much money in both Republican and Democratic politicians, Enron had the upper hand when any organization like the SEC tried to make objective audits towards the company. This is yet another inconvenient detail the Bush administration danced around. Additionally, Arthur Anderson wouldn't have been able to be so complicit in Enron's actions had Congress's measures to regulate accountants passed before the Enron scandal. These measures were crushed by Enron's business partners at the time, so Arthur Anderson continued to earn tens of millions of dollars for their bogus auditing and consulting services. It's pretty scary to learn that before Enron crumbled, they had contributed to 71% of the U.S. Senate and 43% of the House. They lobbied Congress on energy and tax policy, as well as rules about gifting politicians. All the while, Bush's chief of staff, Andrew Card, acted as though he just sat on knowledge that Enron pressured Bush's commerce and treasury secretaries to boost their credit rating. Card likely was just giving Bush plausible deniability. There's no way Card didn't come to Bush immediately when he learned about what Enron was doing. Also, because this is Bush we're talking about, Enron made $254 million from Bush's $5 billion tax break. Just as there were no heroic whistleblowers to bring down Enron, there were no heroic lawmakers who brought down the politicians who made Enron possible. 2008 proved that busting white-collar criminals wasn't a thing that those in power ever felt like doing. Investigations continued into Enron. Jeffrey Skilling and Ken Lay were tried for their crimes, and the Sarbanes-Oxley Act was signed into law in 2002. This was in order to better regulate and penalize Enron-like companies. But we could have had more. We could have really hunted down and shook those who claimed they didn't know any better while they secretly lied, cheated, and stole from the American people. 
we could have caused reform to the system so a greedy company couldn't escape by regulations just because they had a few pals in DC. This would have been an uphill battle in a normal time, but it would have been worth it. Yet, this wasn't a normal time when Enron crashed. When lawmakers began their Enron investigations, a pretty big thing happened in America, overshadowing anything having to do with Enron. 9-11. It's just a blunt fact. 9-11 greatly shifted everyone's priorities. Congress's General Accounting Office wanted to sue Dick Cheney to find out what happened in his energy policy meetings, but again, 9-11. In any case, it seems these days, even if a person knows about Enron's scandal, they probably forgot and just don't know how closely tied Enron was to Bush. I could be overreaching, but maybe 9-11 is the reason Enron is not included in the list of the worst things Bush ever did, even if lying about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq is objectively worse. Ken Lay was one of Bush's biggest campaign contributors, but that didn't tarnish Bush's fine and dandy reputation. The general public didn't care that Bush was a fraudulently elected president, so like his ties to Enron, we're going to convince people to impeach him. Post 9-11, war on terror world, just really consumed a lot of public thought. If you read the press from late 2001 and 2002, you'll notice that they accurately list Bush's links to Enron and Enron's bankruptcy, but then address that the nation's real focus at the time was going to war with Afghanistan. So, where does Enron, and possibly even the Bush administration, fit in the California 2003 gubernatorial recall? That's what this was all about, right? Yes. But you'll have to wait till part two, where we'll get into Enron's damage to California, the Bush administration's refusal to help Governor Gray Davis, and I'll explain how in the hell we got Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger to replace him. Thank you so much for listening. Message me on my Anchor profile, and I'll be back to give you your year 2000 fix.